Hey, Jason Wood here, the VA Loan Guy and host of the Armed and Ready podcast. Today, we have a really exciting episode for you. Come on and take a look. Hey, everybody. Thanks and welcome to another episode of the Armed and Ready podcast. I am your host, Jason Wood, the VA Loan Guy. And we have another Zoomy with us today, Air Force veteran, Pete Donnelly, and um, we're super excited because, you know, the Air Force is the best, of course. So, you know, having another Air Force veteran on the show um, definitely raises the, the bar a little bit. So, Pete, thank you so much for coming on the show today, man. appreciate it. Thanks, Jason. Thanks for asking me. It's a great pleasure. Yeah. So, um, now you have, you have a long uh, career in the military. You're in the Air Force for, what, 30 years, right? That's right. Tell us a little bit about that. What what convinced you to get going in the military? What was the the draw? Sure, I, I think it might be uh, a little unusual because uh, I think it was all positive. I uh, uh, had what I thought was a great uh, childhood and um, had great parents, grew up in a great place. And uh, when I was in college, I had a great time, uh, played football uh, and that, I guess playing football as I grew up uh, made me really oriented to a team uh, aspect in my life. And then also that, you know, the, the, the great part of growing up made me feel like I owed something and I needed to pay it back. And I decided that the military was uh, the way I was going to do it. So I, I joined up right after college <clears throat> and uh, um, I had uh, really two uh, really great uh, halves of careers. The first one was as an aviator, uh, was a B-52 radar uh, bombardier, uh, and it was during the Cold War, so a lot to talk about that. And then the second half was as an uh, air liaison officer uh, with the, the uh, really serving with the Army. That's, uh, uh, for those who may not know, is uh, equivalent of uh, yesteryear's um, uh, Ford Air Controller. Uh, and I got in command positions there and, and uh, had a lot of great combat experience. Uh, kind of talk about getting in the right place at the right time. I uh, got into that part of my career in August of 01 and 9 uh, 11 happened right after. And I was up in uh, Fort Drum, New York with the 20th ASOS, and we were the first out the door. So uh, that was a great experience. I can talk a little bit more about that, but th those were. What, really why I got into it and, and the two halves of what I thought was a great career. That's really cool. So um, the B-52, I mean, we all know that's a pretty iconic airplane, um, especially during the Cold War. What, what do you do as, as the bombardier? Like what, when you're in the airplane, what, what are you doing? I mean, for not dropping bombs, what are you, what are you doing in there? Well, uh, um, <laughs> it depends who you talk to, because if you're a bombardier, you do everything. If you're a pilot, you know, you talk about being in charge, but uh, you really, you run the weapon systems and uh, you have a navigator sitting with you. You're cross-checking to make sure uh, the aircraft's going in the right place at the right time. And then as far as the weapons were concerned, that, that was really a big deal uh, back in the day. That, that was during, again, the Cold War. So you flew with nukes and uh, we sat alert. So uh, you had the two-person concept, you know, you'd have to set the codes and, and, uh, and the 1B-52, 
during that period was uh, really the third most powerful nation on earth. You had, you know, United States, Russia, and then one buff was the next in line. And we had six on alert at the time. So as a radar, you, you're uh, helping with the navigation, you're ensuring the weapons are accurate, and you're targeting properly, hitting the right targets. Uh, so a lot of responsibility, uh, but it was also a lot of fun. That's really cool. <clears throat> so during the Cold War, I got to imagine, like, you know, was it pretty tense when you guys were in the air, just wondering if you're ever going to get the call or, you know, what was the atmosphere like while you guys were up on, on doing your sorties and stuff? Yeah, I, I misspoke a little bit. Uh, you didn't, during the time that I was in, we didn't actually fly with the nukes, but we did pull alert with the nukes on the ground. Gotcha. So when you're pulling alert, you always did wonder was the balloon, if the balloon went up, were you going to get the call? Um, and so the Claxton, they would exercise that every once in a while. So you'd hear the Claxton go off and you'd scramble, get back in your truck, you'd race out to the alert facility, or if you were in the alert facility, you'd, whatever you were doing, watching TV or studying or whatever, you'd run out to the airplane, you'd fire up the engines and taxi. And while you were taxiing, you were decoding the message you were getting from command post. And if it was a particular message, it meant you were going. Uh, luckily, most of the time, it was a exercise message. So, uh, but, you know, it was a lot of interesting conversations uh, about uh, whether or not guys would do it. And, and, you know, the answer was, of course you would. Uh, that's what you were there for, uh, meaning you would go and, and uh, execute your strikes. So, yeah, a lot of tension. And, the training, I think it's underappreciated, and I, I have a, one quick story associated with this, but uh, that uh, during the Cold War, we lost a lot of guys, and it was because we were training to fight an enemy that wanted to, to uh, wipe us off the face of the earth, and they were almost equally skilled at uh, warfare as we were, so they, they would jam, they had uh, surface air missiles, so the B-52 and at that time flew low level to execute its mission. So you were down on the deck. Uh, in, in execution, you'd be down probably 50 feet and uh, to get underneath the radar. And training to those intensities, uh, we, we crashed a few. And uh, I was stationed at Fairchild Air Force Base. And uh, as they were starting to wind down the Cold War and they were shutting down bomber bases, we did uh, the last of the couple of air shows before they were going to remove the bombers. And, and I think most guys, especially like yourself from the Air Force, you probably have heard of the, the B-52 crash there at Fairchild. And um, that, that's a lesson I took with me because that was my crew. And uh, if it wasn't for uh, the co-pilot, who was the squadron commander, trying to take care of me, which is another uh, lesson I took throughout my entire 30 years was you always take care of your people. Uh, he got me an assignment. And at, when the time came to go, I said, hey, I want to fly the air show. And uh, he said, look, I, I, I did what I could. I pulled some strings to get you this job. So I think it's good for your career. Uh, go ahead. Well, I did. And uh, um, unfortunately, the guys uh, all died. And they, one of the guys took my place. Um, but the the other lesson from that was as we led up to it, there were a lot of indications that, that uh, this could happen, but there was the kind of go along attitude and I was guilty of it uh, too, because we, it was kind of fun to train to fly at those altitudes and 
it was challenging and and I, I think we we all got a little cocky and and um you know I caught myself once uh, correcting a young guy who was trying to correct us all for flying below the legal altitudes and that's when I had uh, a real big wake up call so you know you always got to do the right thing uh and you got to always kind of be thinking about what that right thing is yeah yeah absolutely man you got lucky um someone was looking out for you for sure yeah that's for sure you guys ever have you know you see on on the news periodical see like a um you know russian airplane kind of fly over alaskan airspace you know did you guys did you guys ever have any encounters with like any other russian airplanes while you were there or um get shot at or, or anything like that uh we got lit up by radars but never shot at uh, we used to since we were on the uh, in the pacific northwest we would fly north towards the kamchatka peninsula so we would purposely get close enough to test the radars and once in a while they'd light you up they'd send in interceptors out there and just like they would fly bear bombers over the united states or into our territory and be escorted out we had the same uh kind of scenario going on oh wow it's fascinating um and so what other what other places did you get um deployments to well uh the, moving on to the second half of my career um i they were shutting down bomber bases left and right and uh i think i kind of crescendoed there uh in in that uh, career field so i felt like i needed a new challenge so i became an alo and uh i went from but before then that the assignment that my commander got me was the air force academy as a um um what do they call it a air officer commanding air aoc and you're in charge as a as a captain of a squadron of cadets and i learned a lot about leadership there uh, they don't call it the zoo for nothing and uh, <laughs> you know it, that was a lot of fun i, I love that assignment and i also uh, did a little stint in the inspector general office up there as a deputy uh, then i moved on i did one uh, quick tour at air combat command uh, as a staff officer and then i went to fort drum and that was a whole different uh, ball of wax you know you, you take your aviation experience and then you integrate with the uh, squadron who's got uh, their primary uh, warfighting tool is the Joint Terminal Attack Controller, the JTAC enlisted guy, and you share your aviation piece so they're, they better, they're better knowledgeable on controlling aircraft for airstrikes and support of the Army. And like I alluded to, you know, right out of that, that's upstate New York, which was a nice place to live, but I, I really was never there uh, for very long because in the two years of that assignment, I was deployed for uh, the initial response to 9-11 in Afghanistan. Uh, and I could talk a little bit about that. And then um, as soon as we were done with that, we, we planned and, and executed the uh, invasion of Iraq. So I did ended up doing four tours in Iraq and uh, three in Afghanistan. Um, I'd say the, the first one in Afghanistan uh, was um, I kind of characterize it as uh, Forrest Gumping my way through the war because I deployed by myself. Uh, I went places to my, by myself and I was uh, working with uh, joint forces that really didn't want an Air Force guy around. So uh, I wasn't warmly welcomed. But uh, so you learn how to uh, stand on your own and, and uh, represent uh, the Air Force to uh, um, sometimes appreciative, but sometimes belligerent uh, joint partners. Yeah, 
Yeah, tell us a little bit about the the 9-11 experience from your shoes. Sure, so, uh, you know, we're there in New York and, and uh, as uh, fate would have it, my wife was uh, going up to uh, the World Trade Center uh, that morning uh, with a friend and we were at the base, you know, business as usual. Uh, the attacks happened. Uh, luckily, she uh, didn't make it across the bridges, uh, so was never in, in danger. But we were all locked down. And then shortly thereafter, as we figured out what we were going to do as a response, um, my group commander uh, pulled me from the squadron to uh, assist with a, um, a special mission kind of thing. And I ended up uh, going in with the uh, Marines at um, Camp Rhino. This, this was the, uh, <laughs> you know, a hostile welcome. But uh, General Mattis was the uh, task force commander. And, uh, um, you know, he, he did not want me there and, and personally escorted me to the end of the airstrip to get me off after uh, a really tough fight to get into the airfield. But uh, I respect the guy. He was great. Uh, we met up later in Iraq uh, when I was with the 82nd. And uh, he was uh, running the 1st uh, Marine Division, commanding the 1st Marine Division. Um, but uh, so what happened was we had special forces and they didn't really have integrated airmen at the time that trained with them. So um, my boss, the, the group commander, convinced them that that's what they needed. And so my squadron commander from Fort Drum went in, a couple of us followed. Uh, and then eventually this all culminated in, in the retaking of Afghanistan from the Taliban using air power. Um, that was the asymmetric advantage. And then it culminated in, and again, I just happened to be in the right place at the right time. My boss had gone home, my squadron commander had gone home, and I was still there. So when the 10th Mountain got given, or they were given the, uh, the first conventional battle responsibility against the remnants of Al-Qaeda, I was in charge of the, of the um, uh, air power, and that was at Operation Anaconda. So uh, that, that was a uh, fur ball, a lot of lessons learned there. And I, I think the lesson to take away from that for airmen is, you, you know, I, this is not blowing my horn, this is blowing the horn of the Air Force, is that, you know, a few uh, knowledgeable airmen put together an air plan and executed air support that was really the difference. You, you know, you had almost equal numbers of uh, enemy on both or enemy on the, the one side and allies on the other. And we were restricted with the firepower we had. We didn't have artillery. We had mortars. Uh, our helicopters at that, those altitudes were very restricted. So you almost had an infantry on infantry situation. And if it wasn't for air power, um, you know, it would have been probably equal casualties. And, and we ended up, um, on the conventional side, uh, not really taking any, um, not casualties, but KIA versus over a thousand of the enemy. Um, and that, that asymmetric advantage was the difference. That was air power. That's really interesting. So when you're planning something like that in just out of being curious, you know, you're planning an airstrike and stuff. I mean, are you guys getting down to, the, the level of, okay, we need, well, this type of aircraft and, and, and th these types of munitions and that type of thing, or, you know, to what, what detail do you guys get into from, from your seat? 
Yeah, you got it exactly right. You, uh, you have the, the guys that are the experts, not only in your own, in, in my case, my own weapon system, but uh, not, and not only the officers, but the enlisted guys, they become the, the subject matter experts in air, plow, air power employment. So that means you got to know all the systems, you got to know wh which weapons go with which aircraft and which delivery platform in a certain situation is the best. So you, you get to that granular, uh, level of granularity with the targeting. And as an example, one of the issues we had initially was we were using JDAMs and uh, they'd been used before. But one of the issues we had was the, uh, they called it micro terrain. So you had all this big terrain, but then around that was all this other terrain that interfered with the glide path of the bomb. So if you, you had a bomb coming in at a certain angle, which you can control on a JDAM, uh, you, we were wondering why these targets were still around. Well, they were hitting this micro terrain. So we had to program it to come uh, 90 degrees straight down to be able to hit the target. So there's a lesson learned that we didn't know going in. We learned rapidly and, you know, American military uh, ingenuity, you know, we, we took advantage of uh, the, the intel that we had to, to change that, uh, those parameters on the weapon. And then we passed on lessons learned to our uh, successors so that we wouldn't waste weapons anymore. Um, so it's that kind of detail that these guys have. And it's a real nod to the, uh, to the uh, TACP community and the enlisted guys. Um, one more point about that is, you know, the, the really interesting distinction for the TACP guys are that, is that you have uh, an airman, a senior airman, let's say, is the uh, air components representative to a fire-breathing lieutenant colonel army battalion commander. So th those, that's his representative. So we have to train these young guys to uh, stand up for air power and represent uh, the, the joint um, air component commander. Uh, and you know, the army's all about rank. So it, it just, you know, some of the guys got, uh, you know, their heads were going to explode because they, they were arguing with a senior airman and uh, E-4, you know, and, and they, they didn't like to do that. But, and it showed the maturity and the strength of uh, the TACP guys, and it's never gotten any easier since then. Um, I, their knowledge levels have, have uh, the requirement of knowledge has gone up, but, you know, those, those tense moments haven't decreased at all. That's really cool. That's that's really tipping the hat for the Air Force for sure. Uh, so you did 30 years um, military and then you got out, obviously. So what, what has been your transition to civilian life? What what did you what have you been doing and how was that? Well, two things. I guess I do do things in twos. But uh, the uh, the first thing was uh, I, I looked for something unique and different, something um uh, you know, I'll say a little bit more creative. Military is a little bit more destructive, but uh, <laughs> uh, but I ended up doing um, uh, uh, military contracting, and I'm doing that now. But the thing I fell into, which I, I really enjoy, is I run a veteran-focused uh, uh, publishing company. Okay. And so I was uh, writing a book. I had written a book at, over time, and some of it was uh, this experience, some about the experience I related. So I uh, 
was collaborating with some other veteran entrepreneurs and they suggested, hey, how about we start a publishing company and you run it? I said, well, I really don't know much about that, but you know, just again, back to the uh, military ingenuity, you figure it out. So uh, we've been operating for five years and uh, uh, it's A15 Publishing and I uh, really enjoy it. And we've uh, published uh, over two dozen books and it's all primarily by uh, military veterans, but also their family members and other service elements. Like uh, we have a foreign service officer's wife wrote a kid's book. Uh, so that's been very enjoyable. And it also, it has expanded my uh, contacts. Um, I, I think you, you probably can attest to, to uh, you know, as a veteran, uh, you, you, you may tend to initially gravitate to other veterans, uh, but a job like you have and a career like you've established now pulls you out of that to, to uh, work more broadly. And, and that's right. what this has done with me. So I, I love them both. I, lo I love staying involved with the military and passing on my uh, expertise, but I also like the creative aspects of uh, writing, but also of helping other veterans get published. So what does a, what does a publishing company actually do? So if someone decides they want to write a book, what is the publishing company's role in the whole thing? That's a great question. Uh, as we figured out, as we went along, uh, we do quality control uh, for somewhat. You know, we, we use uh, what we call beta readers. So, for instance, if you were an avid reader and enjoyed perhaps reading unpublished work, then, then I would send you, and, and we have a, a staff of beta readers. So I send them uh, the unread manuscripts and they give me a coffee shop review. I said, you know, I really enjoyed it or, you know, the character development could be better or this is a historical novel or um, a nonfiction. It should have more um, references, things like that. So once we, we get a feel for it, will, will this succeed? Then we proceed with production and that goes to the manuscript goes to an editor. So that's the written word quality control. We've done the kind of creative um, saleability quality control with the beta readers. Then we get the editor doing that, the uh, literary quality control. Then we have to format the book to ensure that it fits into the digital and the print distribution formats. Um, and then uh, we make a cover. Uh, that's another creative process because uh, covers sell books. Uh, and then we um, uh, launch the book and then we market the book. So it's a lot on the publisher. Um, the, the creative side and the, and the inspiration is all on the author, uh, but most of the other stuff is on us. So I imagine you have to have connections for distribution on that stuff, which you know, as we've seen over the past few years and probably been expedited recently, has kind of left like the brick and mortar store, like bookstores and things like that have decreased in quantity. Um, and a lot more has moved to online. So, um, you know, have, have you been impacted by that shift and, and how have you guys had to kind of maneuver to get the books sold? Yeah, again, great question. And it really exposes our, our learning process because when we started we we had that traditional viewpoint we hey we have to send these these uh, manuscripts to a printer they have to make a big pile of books then we have to take them to bookstores and we have to sell them. 
So we were uh, a little off on that. We, we had a big pile of books that, um, that were not selling uh, as rapidly as we needed them to sell. So we shifted. And over these last, we've been in uh, business for five going on six years. We have shifted to primary, primarily a digital marketing and digital production. Uh, print on demand is a, is a big thing. Um, and the, uh, the traditional store that, that uh, at least for us, that stands out is Barnes & Noble because they went digital and, they, and people just love to go into a, a bookstore, look through a book and have a cup of coffee. So uh, they're still around and, and getting in there gives us an opportunity for local marketing. Once we get our book in Barnes & Noble, then they'll host a um, signing. So uh, they love to do that. It, it's, uh, they love to highlight uh, veteran authors. So uh, that's a great experience for our authors too, is, you know, you, okay, you're published, but now you're sitting there with your pile of books chatting with uh, potential customers about your writing experience or the experience related in the book or the story. And, and you know, people buy them and assign them. So that's a lot of fun. That's really cool. So what, what advice would you have for someone who wants to write a book? Well, if it fits within our category, come to us and we'll do the rest. Uh, but uh, <laughs> if you're a writer, no, I, I, no I'm not trying to um, self-promote here, but uh, the, the question, to answer that question, I would say uh, it is a process. And if you, you want to write a book, uh, you really do have to dedicate, just like anything, you know, your expertise and what you do, you, you really have to master your craft. And I, I, maybe not master, you have to learn it. Because uh, there's a lot of stuff where you, you feel passionate about writing and you, you think you have a great idea, but there's, there's a way to put together a book. There's a way to think through how to do it. And writing is a, it's a passion, but it's also uh, can be a burden. You know, you have to decide... Uh, that you want to do it and then you have to set time aside for yourself to do it. Otherwise life gets in the way. And like me, it'll take you 10 years to write your first book and uh, things change over that. Your perspective changes over 10 years. So uh, yeah. yeah, put your mind to it and uh, uh, make yourself a schedule and learn the craft. There's a lot of great veterans writing courses out there. That's cool. Um, what are you seeing as far as um, like the type of stuff that, you know, these veteran um, authors are, are bringing your way? Is a lot of it about, you know, kind of just their past and their experience or, you know, are you, are you seeing a trend kind of in one kind of genre or topic over another? Uh, I think earlier I, I would have called a trend, but now I think as we've had a broader uh, um, series of books come out it's it's really across the board um, there's a lot of uh, veterans who want to help other veterans through uh, maybe PTSD dealing with that um, we've had numerous creative uh, uh, poetry um, you know really off the wall kind of books about the experience of going through that um, so that's a theme that we have several books along those lines memoirs, uh, you know, folks who are, you know, maybe I, I would say uh, getting, getting to the second half of their life uh, are, are concerned, rightly so, that, that maybe their story will be lost 
Uh, so they start writing it down and they'll write memoirs. We, we have, uh, I'd say a good portion of our books are um, Vietnam vets writing about their experience. Oh, wow. And, um, and we, we have captured some uh, World War II vet stories. And, and you know, we, we all, everybody has to be aware that, uh, you know, those heroes aren't going to be around for much longer. You know, on average, I think they're in their mid-90s. Yeah. Um, so uh, that's, we, we try to look for those opportunities. Uh, kids books too. There's, we've had a lot of kids books and uh, humor. You know, vets are great about humor. Uh, so uh, we've had some of those, but uh, I think we've, we've kind of covered across the board, but our mission really was focused on making sure we got as many veteran stories out there, uh, especially for the older, uh, the greatest generation for sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's really neat. Um, what, what kind of um, correlations can you make from, you know, your military experience into, you know, running your own business? What, what things do you take from that? Well, I, I look at that occasionally. On, uh, you know, I'm really not thinking about doing that, but occasionally it'll, it'll come up when I'm starting to build uh, a staff. I'm looking at, you know, that's what you do in, in the uh, Air Force, you know, in the military. You, you build teams and you try to get the right person with the right expertise focused on a particular area. So you, you never let that go. You know, you want to maximize people's performance. So if you see they're strong in a certain area, then you want to give them every opportunity to shine in that area. Um, the, the collaboration part, uh, reaching out uh, to other organizations to collaborate, uh, that, that has uh, stayed with me and, and I think now with the team. Um, so I, I, I think it's all good. You know, there's, there's a lot of good lessons about um, enduring you know kind of hanging in there when things are going tough the military teaches you that uh, in spades so i i uh, have always appreciated that and it makes you not not panic or jump on the first red herring of a reason that something might have gone wrong uh, so you hang in there and until you figure it out and i, I think that, that's those are primarily the ones i think i've taken with me that's good that's good um Wrap us up here with a with a good story from uh, your military career. Okay, let's see. Um, I think the uh, I think the uh, the anaconda uh, during the uh, first uh, few days uh, was something that. I didn't expect, you know, when I, like I mentioned to you, who, who thinks they're going to go to war by themselves? Uh, right. I, I didn't, I, you know, you watch all the war movies and I, I grew up in the sixties. So we had some great war movies. So I always thought this is how I was going to go, maybe hit the beach or jump in. And, and, uh, you know, I actually, I, I was with the 82nd. So I, I was a paratrooper. Uh, I always thought that it'd be something dramatic like that. But I, I went in by myself carrying a bunch of uh, A bags and chem gear. And, and uh, that was not the glorious entry, I thought. And then, uh, but putting together uh, the team uh, was great. And then I'd say probably the, the, the one thing that, that I'll never forget is that uh, 
during the heat of the operation, uh, there was we were taking fire from uh, these villages, and uh, um, we got the we we got the direction from the army to stop. You know, let, let's attack the, those uh, sources of uh, incoming fire, and and I found myself giving direction to the bombers to attack these towns, and uh, which were legally declared hostile. But you know, I thought to myself. Is it feels like it wasn't anywhere like it, but it it kind of felt like World War II, where we're actually bombing uh, places with names on it, and uh, that that was weird. That was really uh, surreal. Um, as as you asked the question, I know we're out of time, but it, it made me think of some other stuff. Maybe probably more uh, more along the lines of what you're looking for, but maybe next time. Okay. Yeah, well, I look forward to that. Um, well, Pete, thanks, thanks so much for being on today. Now, um, I know a lot of our listeners like to support veteran companies and stuff. And, and if they were looking to maybe um, write something and get connected with you, what's the best way they could find you? Um, for the publishing company, we're at uh, www.a15publishing.com. As a start, we also have a Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter uh, page. Uh, and wherever you go, uh, we sell our books uh, either in the bookstores or uh, through Amazon is probably one of the primary places. You can go directly to our website. Uh, and if you communicate with us and, and order direct, there's different kinds of discounts and stuff um, that we, we love to give folks. Um, but thanks for that opportunity. Yeah, no, that's great. Well, thank you for spending some time with us today. I think um, there's always some some great nuggets to pull out of these conversations for you know, any of our listeners, and I appreciate you sharing your story with us. Um, and thank you everybody for stopping by another episode of the Armed and Ready podcast. If you'd like to get in touch um, with A15 Publishing, head online, or if there's anything else that we can help you with um, for your VA loan needs, valoanguy.us. Thanks. Thanks, Jason. Thanks so much for checking into the podcast today. Please like and subscribe below. If you would like more information about anything we covered today, please visit me at valoanguy.us. Thanks, we'll check you next time.